This is a Culture Inject production. The Nevers Podcast presents In Conversation With Seth Shostak is an American astronomer, astrophysicist, and author. He is currently the senior astronomer for the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California, a not-for-profit research organization whose mission it is to explore and study all aspects of the search for life in the universe. He has an undergraduate degree from in physics from Princeton University and a doctorate in astronomy from California Institute of Technology. Seth has written hundreds of magazines and web articles on astronomy, technology, film, and television. Seth's book, Confessions of an Alien Hunter, offers an insider's view of what we might realistically expect to discover light years away among the stars. Seth is also a co-host of the weekly podcast radio program, Big Picture Science, and has served as a consultant on many science fiction films, including Contact, Species 2, and the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. We're happy to welcome Dr. Seth Shostak to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Okay, so starting at the very beginning... What inspired you to become an astronomer? What fueled your rocket to get to where you are today? Well, I didn't use a rocket. It was just a, a bicycle that my dad had for me. But, <laughs> no, I was interested in astronomy at the age of, well, eight, actually, uh, only because I was looking through uh, an atlas that my parents had at home. And uh, there was this diagram in it with all these concentric circles. I didn't know what it was. And I asked my mom. She said, those are planets. And then I, I had to find out what a planet was, but that, you know, that spurred an interest in astronomy. And, uh, you know, by age 10, I built a telescope. I think this is a very common story, actually. Yeah. I guess jumping forward a little bit, how did you become involved with the SETI Institute? And if you could be so kind as to explain to our listeners what the SETI Institute does. Yeah, well, the SETI Institute is, in fact, a nonprofit research organization here in the Silicon Valley of uh, California about 50 miles south of San Francisco, thereabouts. In any case, uh, we're interested in all the questions of uh, life beyond Earth, so life in space, and SETI, which is the experiment that gave the Institute its name, stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So we're trying to do exactly what Jodie Foster was trying to do in the movie Contact. They were just trying to uh, eavesdrop on signals that aliens might be sending either our way deliberately or just as an accidental leakage from their planets. I wanted to ask you about that exactly, because you mentioned that it's a not-for-profit organization. And I like to think with science in general, there's a certain Star Trek purity, idealism, futurism uh, about it. Like there's no ulterior ulterior motive it's about like we're where we're exploring for the sake of exploring and it's about natural human curiosity and um but i i also wanted to mention to kind of set up this question in contrast to star trek i'll reference a character who our listeners will be familiar with uh in the nevers uh so this there's this character who's this kind of insidious dr frankenstein and he uses the scientist's scalpel 
to uh, lobotomize these superpowered individuals in search for power. And I think even non-fictionally today, a lot of science has kind of been co-opted by these large mechanisms and industries that manufacture products and commodify natural resources for financial or political gain. So I was wondering for you, do you think of the purity of science as an important thing to preserve? Like the light of God in a child's eye when they first hear about the universe and to not to not lose that underneath the mountain heaps of corporate funding. Well, I also understand like you have to balance the need to cooperate with all these corporate and political interests because, you know, the Hubble telescope isn't cheap, I would imagine. No, no, it isn't. And it wasn't. And actually, SETI suffers from lack of money. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, there aren't too many corporations interested in SETI as far as I can see. I mean, after all, uh, how's it going to affect their next quarterly earnings? to find out that we have some cosmic company in the galaxy. So, uh, you know, around here, we don't <laughs> actually have to deal with questions of, well, I mean, are we doing this for ourselves or for the company or whatever? But the majority of research, certainly in the United States, is corporate. And it's what you might call applied research, right? I mean, if you're a pharmaceutical company and you have guys working on, you know, trying to find the cure for, I don't know, some disease, obviously your incentive to do that is largely to make money, but that's not necessarily the incentive of the scientists down in the lab on the third floor. They may just be interested. And when it comes to basic research, which is, you know, uh, very fundamental things like, you know, how do quarks work or something like that in physics or mathematics, or for that matter, even in astronomy. Astronomy doesn't have much in the way of practical application anymore. Uh, it once did. You could navigate using astronomy, but you don't have to do that anymore. So, uh, you know, it is, these are, if you will, the pure sciences. The people who do them are mostly just curious about what the answers may be. I don't see a whole lot of influence of, you know, the, the corporation on the kind of science that I see done, but maybe I'm just in the wrong field. Or maybe you're in the right field. It, what you do is so fascinating. And I have to say, just getting to the idea, the fundamental idea of the scientists, I wanted to ask you, because I think a lot of science is driven by curiosity, at least in my direct experience, that's in my interest in science, is my own curiosity. And I was wondering, in a lot of the human stories that we tell each other, many times curiosity is warned against, like it's this dangerous thing, you know, like Pandora was curious that's why she opened the box that doomed humanity and Eve was curious. That's why she ate from the tree of knowledge that doomed humanity. Oh, women, so, I notice. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> even, even like, I guess you can reference Dr. Frankenstein again. He was curious about the fundamental nature of life and he meddled in God's domain and doomed his own life. So I was wondering, why do you think that we are so subconsciously scared of our innate curiosity? Yeah. I, you know, the fact that several of them are women, I, that's just I, some sort of misogyny. I don't know. But but the fact that scientists are often portrayed as actually either misguided or positively evil. There are evil scientists. You know, you don't hear too much about evil stockbrokers or, or whatever, you know, uh, e evil transmission repair guys, you know, just not associated with those trades. But in the case of science, I think that this simply reflects a base level anti-intellectualism in the United States. And, uh, you know, 
I'd be the last one to criticize the United States, but they do do this. And it's because the heroes in the United States, unlike in Europe, for example, uh, in Europe, you know, being an intellectual is actually a prestige thing. You are a member of the elite, and that's not considered a bad word. But in the United States, elite is considered a bad word. And people who have a lot of education are not necessarily looked up to. There's often looked down at. Uh, I think that's because of our history. We were a frontier nation for, you know, the first couple of hundred, well, a couple of centuries uh, of our history. And so what we value is the ability to, you know, walk across the mountains and, you know, deal with the bears or whatever else and, and survive. That's our hero. And you can see it in the films. The, the, the films that are made in the U.S. are fundamentally different than the ones made in Europe. And, you know, when I was a kid, heck, Scientists always were these little, you know, short, bald guys with white lab coats running around trying to save the monster while the monster was busy, you know, destroying New York. And uh, the real hero of the film was always trying to save New York. We, I guess we need more of a positive cultural influence, like a, a scientist hero character. It's interesting that you mentioned that the history of the United States is on the frontier when you think that science is the ultimate frontier, right? Like yeah. space, like, I mean, that's that's where, that's the only place we can really expand our well, horizons. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, that, that that that's a bit of a subtle point, I think, for most for most people to say, you know, space, the final frontier, as <laughs> James Tiberius Kirk would say. Uh, yeah, but... You know, I, I will say this, that I think that this this general tendency to equate scientists with being sort of unappealing nerds, uh, half the time they're busy doing something that will not be to the benefit of uh, you and me. I, I think that that has definitely attenuated in the past maybe 20 years. If you go to uh, movies today, right, very often the heroes are scientists. I mean, beginning with Jurassic Park, right? You know, the, the scientists can be the heroes now, and that was never the case. Uh, being a nerd these days is almost a badge of honor. Certainly wouldn't have been that way 40 years ago. So yeah, maybe maybe that is a it, it's fine to be a tough guy that can beat up other guys in bars. But, you know, if if you're Nell, the uh, female lead in the film, Maybe you'd rather go for, you know, Rodney over there who can program in C and Python and can earn a good living. I don't know. I don't know. But it has changed. Yeah. Um, so uh, you mentioned in your talk, 2012 TED Talk, uh, you made a bet that within 24 years, we will have found extraterrestrial life. <laughs> uh, so nine years on, do you still think that? And if not, how can we redeem our coffee? Like, will yes. you have a promo code or will we get vouchers? No, What's you won't hear a thing from me. But <laughs> in, indeed, I, actually, that goes back to a talk I gave maybe a year or two earlier than that in Bremen, Germany. And, uh, you know, somebody in the audience asked, uh, when are we going to find the aliens after all? Because you guys haven't done it yet. And I said, look, if we don't find them in two dozen years, I'll buy you all a cup of Starbucks. And, uh, you know, this was in Germany. And they said, what's a Starbucks? But in any case, I did bet them that, and uh, that has dogged me ever since, that that uh, bet. My wife is buying a stock in Starbucks. <laughs> but I still feel that it might be true. I really do. I mean, it was motivated by more than just an attempt to wake up the audience. 
it was motivated as much by the fact that thanks to Moore's law, which describes the improvement in computers, uh, SETI experiments where we we're looking for those transmissions, those radio transmissions, uh, I, I get faster every year. And on average, they double in speed every two years. So it is Moore's law. Do you want that to happen? Do you want us to come in contact with aliens? Well, why not? I mean, if you pick up a signal, right, from some, I don't know, some species on a planet 50 light years away, uh, I, I don't know how that could hurt you, right? I mean, what, what, what's the danger? You've learned something. It's like saying, you know, well, wait a minute, Chris, you sure you want to get on these uh, ships and uh, sail across the Atlantic? Who knows what you might find? I mean, you sure you want to do this? Well, he was quite sure he wanted to do it. So, uh, you know, it's exploration. And uh, there's no danger in, in listening. After all, that's not a dangerous thing to do in any case. But, you know, except insofar as if you find something and you ever understand what you found, you know, maybe you're confronted with very advanced knowledge and that might disrupt your whole day. Right. Yeah, I, I see that. I guess we shouldn't limit ourselves by, uh, imagine, uh, I guess, imagined fears that don't exist right now. You also mentioned in your talk that any civilization that we contact or receive signals from will likely be more advanced than us. So I was wondering, why is that? And why do you think we haven't heard from them yet? Well, the reason is only this. If they're less advanced than we are, they can't build powerful transmitters. So we're not going to hear from them. It isn't that they don't exist. It's just that we don't hear from them. So I, you, you know, that argument is basically the argument. In order for us to, or in order for us to be able to pick up their signals, their signals have to be fairly strong, and if they're fairly strong, they're at least at the level we are in terms of technology, and most likely considerably beyond. So, any aliens we hear from are going to be technically more advanced than we are. I think that's almost a trivial statement. It isn't to say there aren't a lot of Klingon, you know, Neanderthals. It could very well be a lot of them, but but, but we're not going to discover them. <laughs> Could it be that the likelihood of an alien civilization existing in the same time window as humanity is too slim? Like we're ships that pass in the night, either the aliens around us are too primitive, like you mentioned, or have gone extinct by the time advanced aliens receive our signals. Perhaps we will have gone extinct by the time they receive our signals. Yeah. Could it just be that? Well, there is, a, there is a demand on synchronicity, which is what you're alluding to. Mind you, we're not transmitting anything, so it doesn't matter whether they're listening for our signals. The only thing they can pick up are television stations and radar and stuff like that. But uh, indeed, I mean, we you know, point our antennas at nearby star systems, and maybe there was a civilization there two million years ago, but they're gone now. Or maybe there will be a civilization two million years from now, so they haven't ar arisen yet, and we don't pick up any signal. I mean, that's, that's very, very possible. The only way it can work, really, is if some societies leave transmitters on for long periods of, uh, long periods of time, and uh, they may or may not do that. Yeah. So, like, uh, we invited you on a podcast because the TV show that we're reviewing, The Nevers, uh, the subject of it is that an advanced race of aliens come to this apocalyptic war-torn Earth to try to save humans from themselves and total environmental destruction. Uh, so in this kind of case study, there's an incredibly powerful alien race and their arrival has massive implications in the world and in the story. 
like, like their technology empowers a percentage of the population with special abilities, like precognition, shooting fireballs, that kind of stuff. So, in coordination with that, some people believe that alien life in the cosmos, uh, aliens have visited us because they see our path as one headed towards destruction. And in your book, Confessions of an Alien Hunter, you talk about the implications of alien visitations. So I was wondering, do you think that, what would you say to those who think an alien race would care what we're doing to our planet? Well, I think it's very self-centered. To be to be compar- completely candid, I mean, I don't know why they'd be interested. To begin with, they probably don't even know about what we're doing because if they're more than you know, forty light years away, there hasn't been enough time for our nightly news broadcast to reach them and for them to come back here to you know intervene. So I <laughs> I, I don't think that's at all likely that somebody's going to come down here. We're going to save you guys from yourselves. Uh, there's also the whole motivation question, but I can't speak to the motivation of aliens. But I certainly don't, you know, try and separate uh, the the birds from the cats in my backyard, right? I could do that. I'm, I'm, I've come here to save you, birds. I mean, they might appreciate it, but you know, I, I just don't do it. So I, I'm not sure that they would find that uh, worthy of the enormous costs of interstellar travel. Uh, mind you, I can't speak for all the aliens or even some of them. Do you think technological advancement is commensurate with moral advancement? Would you do you think an advanced society naturally progresses morally and is more compassionate and loving, or is that you know negated by the Christopher Columbus example? Well, Chris Columbus wasn't really, you know, so much against the natives. He didn't. He thought they were Japanese. Remember, uh, he. I think that he probably just didn't care. He was more interested in you know, what the, the places he was finding had to offer, right? If he had known that he'd found a new world, which he didn't, but had he known, he might've said, okay, you guys got any gold around here or something like that. I mean, that was in the end, what really interested the Spaniards. It wasn't so much about, you know, destroying the, the natives, although they did engage in that. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know that that was the motivation. Most of the exploration was done in search of raw materials at first, at least at first. But I, you know, I don't know. I mean, the aliens coming here, uh, would that, I don't know. I, I think, I think it's very hard to say anything about the motivations for aliens, either to get in touch or to travel and uh, getting in touch at least is easy. Traveling is not easy. I don't know. It's tough to, tough to speculate. And in the end, it is all speculation. So I'm going to ask you about a hot button issue. What are your views on UFO sightings? I'm all for them, but I've never, <laughs> never been convinced that any have actually been accomplished. Uh, I, I hear every day from people who have seen something or photo, you know, well, seen something to begin with. Uh, they say, you know, I have some information that's very important for you. That's usually how their emails begin. It's amazing how similar the emails are. But anyhow, uh, these are these are not, you know, charlatans. They're not trying to pull a hoax, right? And these are just honest people that have seen something they don't understand. And they think maybe it's proof of alien visitation. So I, you know, I answer all my emails and I say, well, look, um, you know, I don't think we're being visited, but on the other hand, if you've got any video or still photography of what you saw, you know, I'd be happy to look at it. And in about half of the cases, they do have some photographic uh, evidence. 
and they send it to me. And fortunately, or maybe not, fortunately, photography is a long-term hobby of mine. And so very often I can tell them what it is they're seeing in their photos because because a lot of the time it's just optical effects in the cameras, right? Or uh, artifacts of this the shutters. Uh, most people don't realize their cell phones have what are called, you know, uh, um, can't even remember the term for it, but these line readout uh, shutters. It's not a mechanical shutter like you have in a real camera. And as a consequence, it distorts objects and stretches them out. And so they don't look like what they often are, which is birds and insects and stuff like that, even aircraft, right? Rolling shutters, I think they're called. Anyhow, so, you know, I do hear from them, but I've never seen any evidence where I said, my gosh, that is pretty darn convincing. And uh, that also extends to the Navy videos. Yeah, and I think the government has lately been kind of softening its stance on denying the UFO evidence. But yeah, I, I kind of I kind of align with what you're saying, because I don't know if even if I were to see something that I would trust my uh, sensory ability to perceive the truth of what's happening. Um, but who knows, I guess. That's the that's well, to be seen. I, I just think that if we were being visited to begin with, there wouldn't be anything more interesting, right, than being able to show that we're being visited. I think you'd have just tens of thousands of scientists all around the world just clamoring to get to the data and investigate it. They want to know more, right? Where are these guys from? And why are they right. here? And what are they going to do? And all that stuff. And you know, so you have to assume that well, the reason they're not working on it is either they're deliberately being obtuse and they won't look at the data. I hear that a lot. Um, or the government is covering it all up. But of course, then every government has to be covering it all up. Either that or the aliens only visit our country, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Uh, nowadays, they not only restrict themselves to one country, they restrict themselves to uh, areas where Navy pilots are busy. I don't know how to explain that. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense either. But you know, I think that if we were being visited, the evidence for that would be very, very clear, and it would be from multiple sources, and it would be overwhelming, right? That, uh, you know, you could point to all sorts of satellite imagery or just pictures people take from airplanes or whatever, say, look at all this stuff, right? But you can't say that. There isn't much. There's nothing really that's convincing. And I that, that says something to me. The fact that go down to your local university and ask how many of the researchers there investigating this phenomenon and the answer is always an, an integer less than one. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Segwaying into uh, the discussion of science in, I guess, for me, my introduction was through entertainment, watching science fiction movies, that kind of thing. You served as a consultant on a few sci-fi films, such as Contact, Battleship, Species 2, the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Could you uh, uh, enlighten us as to how you got involved and how significantly they took your notes and suggestions? Well, <laughs> I got involved only because I've been interested in films like you, I guess. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I went to a lot of movies. And we started making movies when I was 11, actually. We made a lot of films. <laughs> they, I, I, I won't say that they were great films, although one of them won a Hollywood Award or some sort. But in any case, so I've always been interested in that. I still do a lot of TV stuff. but you know, consulting was as close as I got to uh, theatrical film making. And uh, it, it, it turns out that the 
National Academy of Sciences has an organization down in LA called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. And when they find that somebody is going to make a science fiction film, they will approach them and say, look, and when I say them, they approach maybe the producers, the directors, or the screenwriters and say, would you like to talk to an actual scientist about this stuff? It won't cost you anything because the National Academy of Sciences pays the airfare if you have to fly down to LA or something. Um, and, you know, some of them say, sure. Mostly they want the scientists to solve a plot point problem for them, right? You know, our, our crew goes, uh, their, their spacecraft goes behind the moon. So they're out of touch with the home planet and suddenly this happens to them. And, you know, how do we get them out of that problem or something like that? I, I've redlined uh, quite a few scripts and, um, you know, they pay attention to about 30% of it. I mean, when, when your suggestions conflict with the demands of the storyline, you're going to lose, right? I mean, nobody, everybody agrees, yeah, it'd be nice to get the science right or at least plausible, but nobody would suggest let's do that at the cost of the storyline because if, if the storyline's not good, it doesn't matter whether the science is right. Right. Yeah, that's a balance. How important do you think pop culture is in science dissemination? Because I, I do think watching sci-fi and listening to brilliant folks such as yourself, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan, it's very entertaining and it does kind of soften the rigidity of what we think of as science, or at least, you know, jaded adults think of as science as this boring, sterile thing with beakers and lab coats. But really, there's nothing more exciting than understanding the nature of the reality that we inhabit. So where do you think pop culture fits in there? Well, first, I'm going to put on my lab coat here. Well, uh, actually, I think pop culture plays a large role, actually. It, it certainly did in my case. I mean, after seeing all those, you know, <laughs> films in my youth involving aliens usually come to Earth to trash our cities, uh, and most, most uh, notably Los Angeles, actually. But I live in Northern California, so if the aliens want to trash Los Angeles, I mean, really. But uh, I, you know, I was inspired. I thought, gee, this is really, you know, this is really neat, this stuff. And it turns out that, you know, science isn't quite like in the movies, of course, but, you know, you find that out later. <laughs> so it, it was all OK. I think that I've talked to numerous scientists, mostly in the fields of astronomy or physics, and asked them, how would you get involved? And they said, well, I saw this movie when I was a kid or I watched a TV show or something like that. So I think that pop culture plays a big role in getting kids interested in science. Yeah. Uh, that's certainly been my case. So just to get a progress report, how is the hunt at uh, SETI going? How much closer are we? Well, we don't know how much closer we are because we don't know when we're going to make the discovery that there's somebody out there. So we can't say. Could be that it's, you know, tonight or it could be that it's, you know, a million years from now. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a million years from now. If it is, I'm going to have bought an awful lot of coffee for people. <laughs> but um, the thing is that you know, the speed of the search, as I think I mentioned before, the speed of the search is doubling every two years. So that means that whatever you've done last year and this year is equivalent to everything that was done before. And so given that, and given the fact that by, oh, I don't know, maybe 2030, 2035, SETI experiments will have looked at a million star systems or more. Well, a million seems like a big number to me. That if you look at a million star systems and you still don't find something, then, you know, maybe that has some 
implications. I don't know, but it strikes me as the right sample size to at least tentatively hope for a positive result. And that's why I bought, or sorry, that's why I bet the cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, as a layman myself, when we're examining these star systems, we're essentially, with these telescopes, we're expanding our human senses, right? So where we see with our eyes, we would see with a telescope. Where we hear with our ears, we would hear with uh, a larger kind of mechanism that can um, receive uh waves and signals and that kind of stuff so how what methods is SETI using in the search for intelligent extraterrestrials like how would we be able to know just by like this planet is a habitable planet and therefore alien life must exist well we don't actually even make that assumption we have to decide where to point the antennas and we tend to point them in the direction of stars that uh, are A, nearby, and B, of the type, which is to say something like the sun, that where we know that, okay, they're likely to have a planet sort of like the Earth, or at least the chances are at least, you know, 30%, something like that. So you look at a lot of those kinds of stars, and then presumably you've also, in, you know, looked at a lot of planets that might be like the Earth. But how we would know whether it's really ET on the line, that's uh, a different thing. It fundamentally boils down to finding a signal that's moving across the sky as the Earth rotates, just like all the stars do. And that is a narrowband signal, a signal that's you know confined in frequency, because those are the kinds of signals you get from a transmitter, but you don't get from natural radio emitters like quasars or pulsars. So... We look for that. We look for that kind of a signal coming from some fixed spot on the sky. Now, we wouldn't be receiving that signal in real time, right? Because it would take some amount of time to get to us. And so we would be receiving it with some lag time. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we're observing in real time and we're, you know, <laughs> we're checking the signals in real time, but that's real our time. The signal may have been underway for quite a while. It's like, you know, do you read your mail in real time? Well, yeah, I kind of do. But, you know, it took three days to get to you. Well, there's that. I mean, it's the same thing. If the nearest society is, you know, 100 light years away, then you're you're looking at a signal that was sent 100 years ago. That's true. Right. Yeah. And for all we know that that society could be gone. So without physically visiting any of these planets, there would be no way to conclusively say alien life exists. Well, you mean now, whatever now means in a relativistic universe. Uh, Yeah, although I don't think that's much of a problem because uh, societies, you know, that reach a level of sophistication like ours, I don't think they self-destruct very often or very quickly. In fact, it's hard to self-destruct. I mean, I, you, you might think, oh, of course we could do it. If we really put our minds to it, we could wipe out all humanity. But it's very hard to wipe out all humanity, actually. Uh, in fact, I did some calculations not too long ago. You know, I consider things like pandemics or uh, uh, climate change or nuclear war and all these things, you know, uh, bad television programs, whatever, that you think <laughs> might end humanity as we know it. And none of them could get rid of all humans. No, you just can't do it. It's hard. I, you know, I have hopes for the future. Maybe in another 20 years, we will be able to wipe ourselves out completely. 
And if you had a bit of, big enough asteroid hitting the Earth, it would do it for you. But, you know, that's something you have a defense against now. So I, I don't know. There are people who think, oh, well, we're headed for, you know, headed to hell in a handbasket and so forth. I don't see it that way. I mean, it may not be pleasant, the future, but there's no reason that it has to be the end. I, I think that's hard to do. One thing that might do it is, you know, when we develop machines that are smarter than we are, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what happens to us then. I hope I get to sleep in, that's all. <laughs> so in, in the spirit of education, uh, do you know why we're using, can you explain why we're using electromagnetism in the search for extraterrestrial life and if we should consider additional ways to search? Yeah, well, when you say we're using electromagnetism, uh, we are doing the search using electromagnetic radiation, which is right. to say radio or light, right? I mean, anything that's on the electromagnetic spectrum. And it's only because if you can, you can send information that way, right? You can send a bunch of bits from one place to another on a radio wave or an FM radio wave, a television wave, or a laser beam or, you know, and they, they, they travel at the speed of light. So that's a good thing. You can't do better than that when it comes to sending information. And so we know that that's just physics. And presumably the aliens know it as well. Their physics is the same as our physics. So unless we're missing something in physics that allows you to send information, allows you to send bits faster than the speed of light. I mean, they have them in all the TV shows, but only in the TV shows. Uh, unless we can figure that out, then, you know, it makes sense to send information that way. So, you know. Do we know if that's a mathematic possibility to send info faster than the speed of light? Or is that just conjecture? Well, that's it's not a physical possibility, according to the physics we know. That's Einstein. Okay, okay. okay. So in the hypothetical s scenario in which you do receive a signal that you think could be from an alien civilization, is there a protocol? Is there a big red button that you slam? And Yes, there is. There's this giant red button. And we have it right here in the middle of the Institute, uh, right next to the coffee room. People occasionally step on it by accident, and it just sends people scurrying around the Pentagon and stuff like that. No, we, we don't have a big red button. The president uh, wakes up. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, no, we, there is a protocol, actually. I was chairman of the committee that actually revised the protocols not too long ago. But it doesn't say anything very striking. Uh, in fact, nothing very profound either. It simply says, if you find a signal, make sure that you're not fooling yourself, that it really is a signal from space. Okay, that's just good science. The second thing it says is, um, tell everybody. I, I, the public doesn't believe we would do that, but of course, <laughs> the public's are wrong. Uh, and the third thing it says is, don't broadcast anything back without international consultation, whatever that means. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's not so much a, a, a security issue as it is simply uh, a, a bow to international politics that, you know, you don't want whatever country it is that finds a signal to try and monopolize all communication. I don't know if that's really a serious issue or not, but in any case, that's the motivation for that third item. Okay. But in, 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 in practice, I have to say, we've had at least one false alarm that demonstrated this very clearly. What really happens is if you pick up a signal that the, you know, the local newspapers and TV and radio people start calling you, the, the, all, the whole protocol is completely buried by the fact that the media are all all, all over the story. Yeah, I was going to ask, does that happen often? Because I know in, in 97, uh, SETI detected a signal mm -hmm. 
that they thought was a real deal, but it, they trace it to telemetry from the SOHO Solar Research Satellite. Yeah. So how often does that happen? Well, not very often, actually. And the only thing since then has been a signal that was picked up by the Breakthrough Listen people in 2019 using the Parkes radio telescope down in uh, Australia. And uh, they were still checking that signal out as of this spring. I don't know if they've come to a conclusion. It it was fairly evident that the chances were, were were high that it was simply interference by a satellite or something like that. But it it, it seemed to be coming from the direction of uh, Proxima Centauri, which is the nearest other star to us beyond the sun, and is known to have a planet about the same size as Earth. So it was sort of an intriguing target, but the signals, I don't think it's panned out. Not yet. It may. Not yet. Yet is the operative word. So a new analysis uh, of known exoplanets published in monthly notices of Royal Astronomical Society has revealed Earth-like conditions on potentially habitable planets may be rarer than previously thought. Um, based on research, they found none of the Earth-like exoplanets in our galaxy that we're aware of have the theoretical conditions to sustain an Earth-like biosphere by means of oxygenic photosynthesis. So uh, does that discourage you as an astronomer? Well, it might be. I haven't seen that paper, but I think it undoubtedly is making some assumptions uh, about those planets because the fact that we have oxygen, for example, in our atmosphere isn't because of any conditions that the Earth had four and a half billion years ago when it was born, not, not directly in any case. It's only because we developed life that needed to figure out a way to uh, use sunlight to power its growth. And uh, so plants develop photosynthesis and they exhale oxygen. That was just the waste product. But it turns out that oxidation reactions, you know, any, any chemical reactions involving oxygen do pretty good, uh, do pretty well. They, they, have, they release a lot of energy, I guess that's the point. So that way you can, you know, just eat a, <laughs> a piece of candy and run a mile or, well, maybe <laughs> not entirely a mile, but something comparable to it because, you know, we, we uh, convert that to the energy producing molecules of sugars that we need via oxygen. So oxygen is a good thing if you want to have animals that, you know, use a lot of energy. Uh, would that happen on other planets? Well, we don't know. We only have one example, but it doesn't sound so unreasonable to me. And it could be that life is entirely based on different processes elsewhere. Certainly. Like, a, like a, yeah. Like a silicon-based life form or well, something. Well, silicon, I mean, people have looked at that, and Isaac Asimov actually looked at other chemistries, but silicon might work in certain very high-temperature environments. But, you know, silicon and carbon, carbon is our basis for life. Carbon's much better than silicon at most of the interesting reactions because it's a smaller atom and uh, than silicon. And so, yeah, maybe there's silicon-based life out there, but if you had to bet, without actually knowing, I think, you know, you would go with carbon every time. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the kind of scientific facts that I learned that really made me feel very connected to the universe was the fact that what composes us, like carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, like especially carbon, these are some of the most common elements in the universe. Like so much carbon can be found so... It, with such ubiquity. Yeah, that's true. Carbon is not the number one element, of course. Hydrogen, three, uh, hydrogen is three quarters of the universe is hydrogen. 
at least by weight. And oxygen is the third most common. So that means there's a lot of water around H2O. But carbon, carbon is cooked up by a lot of stars, right? Uh, they get old and they start burning, uh, uh, you know, their interiors from hydrogen into helium, but then they burn from helium into the next elements up and so forth. And carbon is pretty close to the bottom of this uh, uh, table here. So you do get a lot of carbon. There is a lot of carbon in the universe. It's not a rare thing. So, you know, there's probably a lot more carbon than there is silicon, but not on Earth, I have to say. On Earth, there's more silicon than carbon. But Oh, okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Well, I mean, if you go out and dig in the dirt, there's a lot of stuff. I, I don't know if that's true for the entire Earth, but you know, here on the crust, you have a uh, you have a lot of a lot of silicon, silicon dioxide. It's sand, rock, quartz. So <laughs> there is carbon. We we like to dig it up and burn it and power our uh, electric generators. Can you talk about some of the research that your colleagues at the institute are doing into extremophiles? And perhaps if you can explain what those are for the listeners. Yeah, extremophiles, it isn't because of their political views. Extremophiles are uh, simply organisms that live under conditions that we would consider extreme. For example, there are, there are bacteria like critters that live in the fuel tanks of jet airliners. That would be an extreme environment for you or me, probably. I mean, you, you know, you couldn't really have a gusto grabbing lifestyle if you were living in a fuel tank all your life. But they're, they're, you know, microbes that can do that. They can live in nuclear reactions, sorry, reactors, where, you know, the radiation dosage you're getting all the time is, would be fatal for us. But they're tough. They're extremophiles living in, you know, uh, lakes in Antarctica and so forth. It's, you know, they don't see much sun down there, a little bit, not too much. And, of course, the water's cold. Uh, so these are extremophiles, and they're interesting because they show, A, that life is tough. I don't mean tough in the sense that, you know, sometimes the uh, carburetor breaks on your car or anything like that. But I mean, it's, it's tough because biology, once you get it started, it, via evolution, can adapt to many, many environments. And you see that on Earth. I mean, there's, there are very few environments on Earth where you don't find life, right? In the upper atmosphere, not too much life there. It's true. Skies are not green. Uh, and in the ice of Antarctica or the Arctic, there's not much life in the ice either, but almost everywhere else, there's at least something alive. And uh, that just shows you that once you get it started, as I say, life can adapt to all sorts of environments. And those that have adapted to the what we consider the most extreme environments are called extremophiles. And you say, well, that's kind of a rare category. You know, if I, if I go to the science museum, I'm not gonna see too many extremophiles on display. And that may be true, but it's also, probably true that extremophiles are much more typical of life in the cosmos than the kind of things that we don't think are so extreme like squirrels. Do you think that that could be the genesis of life on Earth? Like at the very beginning, it was Earth was not as habitable a planet as it is now. And whatever the, I guess, whatever the first single cellular organism was that kind of complexified and managed to live on the lip of a volcano or something is that was that the proto what 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 all this sprouted out from well there was some sort of you know prototype there was some sort of first living cell i mean <laughs> i don't think we're ever going to find it of course not not 
the cell, but you might be able to trace back almost to that point in our biological history. So, of course, yes, there was such a thing. I, I don't know that it was on the lip of a volcano. These days, most people who uh, think about these things uh, believe that it's likely that the first oh, got started. Yeah, and these hot, you know, these hot smokers, uh, black smokers, they're called in the Pacifics and the Atlantic places where the seafloor is spreading. So you're having hot material coming up from uh, the mantle of the earth through these cracks in the ocean and, you know, creating more oceanic crust. Um, but those are parts of the ocean where it's quite warm. There isn't any sunlight down there. They're usually quite deep. But, you know, you have an energy source, which is the thermal source. And so you have, you know, chemical reactions. You have all the chemistry you want coming up through that uh, crack and so forth. So, you know, it's, it is very trendy today to say that life began in these black smokers. It may or may not have been the case, but it, it certainly makes sense. Yeah. I'm, that's fascinating. I guess to tie it into the show that we're talking about, The Nevers. So in the show, there's an alien race that tr uh, was able to travel to Earth. So the question is, how possible do you think it would be for aliens to arrive via portal? You think that's possible? Via portal? You mean that, you know, just something opens up in the landscape, uh, you know, and suddenly, hi. Well, uh <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the physics of portals. I mean, it, it all depends on that. People talk about wormholes and stuff like right. that. Maybe that's what the portal is, a wormhole. But wormholes are, you know, they work great on blackboards. It still isn't clear whether they could work in the real world, right? I mean, they're theoretically possible, particularly very tiny ones. But very tiny ones aren't what you want. You want something that's big enough that you could drop into it and come out somewhere else or in some other time. Uh, and uh, again, I think that the physics that we know at the moment uh, hasn't allowed us to say whether such things are possible. Uh, the, the indications are, well, maybe you could do, a, you know, you could maybe send an atom through, <laughs> through a wormhole if you had the right conditions with some, you know, negative mass matter or exotic matter of some sort or other. I, I, I think that, that that's still not decided not my field, so I don't want to speak too much about it because I don't know too much about it. But I, I have asked some theoretical physicists about this, and they say, well, they're not convinced that it even has physical reality, at least the ones I asked said that. So I don't know. But if somebody actually does have experience with a portal in their backyards where they're entertaining people from other dimensions or other universes or other parts of this universe, I think they ought to write it up. <laughs> uh, so I know this, this isn't, this probably isn't your field, but the idea of wormholes kind of takes me into the possibility of time travel. And I was wondering, does SETI study that in any sense? And how realistic or likely do you think that is as a concept? Yeah, that's not something that we do spend a lot of time studying, actually. Uh, that's more in the realm of the physicists. And uh, it, it seems that time travel into the future is obviously possible. We're all doing it. But time travel into the past is um, more problematic. It's not clear that you could do that. And indeed, if it were possible, you would expect to find tourists from, uh, you know, 10 generations from now coming back to, you know, check out how good the fast food was here at the beginning of the 21st century. And as far as I know, we don't see too many of them. Uh, they are, they're not taking all the parking spaces. So it's, uh, you know, that's kind of an argument against being able to go 
back into the past. And there's some theoretical reasons for thinking that if you do build a time machine, you can go back into the past only to the point at which you completed building the time machine. So if mm. you build it next year, you know, then 10 years from now, you could use it to come back to next year, right? But it, it's, you know, again, it's something that works on blackboards. It's not clear that it works anywhere else. And there is a problem with, you know, causality. If you could go backward in time, right? All the usual conundrums, what happens if you right. shoot your grandparents and that kind of thing. So, you know, physicists in general do not like violations of causality. Yeah, that's what makes it such a headache. And uh, like the the beautiful opportunity of having you here is that I I get the chance to hopefully ask maybe some uh, crazy questions, maybe some layman questions, some possibly idiotic questions. But nevertheless, I'm going to go for it. I was thinking about time, and what, what I was thinking about was the idea of infinity. And I wanted to ask you about it because mathematically, infinity exists. And from, from what I've learned from science class, it exists in the indefinite expansion of the universe. But it's an idea that the human mind can't really hold tangibly. But for me, at least, the best way I think about it is a shape of a circle. Uh, so I was wondering, because even like our lives are defined that way, like they call it the circle of life. What is your what is your thought on the idea of infinity and how that kind of relates to time, what that means for us? Well, like you, I have difficulty imagining what infinity might mean. It, you know, it's it certainly has its uses in mathematics for sure. Uh, you know, the concept of infinity is not at all, shall we say, strange or a stranger to mathematics. Anybody who takes an integral calculus class will be confronted with infinities right away. But you mentioned the fact that the universe may go on indefinitely. And, you know, the, the, the data that we have so far on the future of the universe does suggest that that's the favored scenario. In other words, the universe is expanding now. And it will never stop expanding. It isn't that it's going to stop, reverse direction, and produce a big crunch, as exciting as that might be. It's just going to keep on expanding. But if it keeps on expanding, what does the future look like? Well, you know, for the next, uh, well, couple of hundred billion years, things won't change terribly much. Oh, sure, you know, the Earth may be swallowed by the dying sun and all that sort of thing. I mean, you know, your favorite uh, top 40 station may go off the air. Who knows? There could be a lot of you know things that happen in the next couple of hundred billion years. But by a trillion years or a couple of trillion years, the last star will have died out. The last star will have winked out. And but that doesn't end the universe. It just means you have a lot of dead stars in the universe, right? And you know, stars like the sun eventually become charcoal briquettes. So you're gonna have these things scattered throughout the galaxy. And every now and then, you know, one charcoal briquette will get close to another one. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but you've got all the time you need even very, very rare things will happen a large number of times. And so, you know, when they get close to one another, one gets kicked out of the galaxy and the other one gets sent to the center of the galaxy. So you grow giant black holes in the centers of galaxies. Everything's dark at this point, but the galaxies become giant black holes and still the universe keeps going. It keeps expanding, expanding. And it turns out that black holes, of course, eventually evaporate they explode and die and that's the end of them and uh, it takes a long time for a, a really big black hole to do that but after a google years it's 10 to the 100th 
So try writing down a number with a one followed by a hundred zeros. That's the number. After that length of time, which is really long, uh, the last big black hole will evaporate, boink, and then that's it. I mean, the universe is still there. The universe still continues to expand, but it's just a cold, dark soup where nothing happens. But it does yeah. that forever. I, I maybe this is the an unpopular an unpopular opinion, but I do kind of like the idea of the inevitability of death, the the inevitability of everything expanding so much that it reaches a heat death and then um an ultimate void. And then from that void, I guess the cycle will start again, where maybe like on this earth, the very first single cellular thing came about, something will come about and there'll be a new Big Bang or something like that. I like that idea of cycles in yeah, nature well, and in the a, universe. A, a lot of people like it, too, from the standpoint of, you know, personal predilection, but also from aesthetical point of views that maybe that, that makes sense. But there doesn't seem to be too much evidence that there's going to be anything cyclic about it. It doesn't look like, you know, the universe will reverse direction, as they say, produce a big crunch. Everything comes back together and then it's big boing, right? It's like the Big Bang goes off again and we'll start all over again. Not with the same planets or the same life forms, but we'll start all over again. But uh, based on the densities of the universe that we've measured so far, the values of the density of the universe, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So don't count on it too much. I'm just going to throw out one more of my questions for you. Um, that's a little, uh, I guess, thought experimenty. So I was thinking a t time is a relative thing, right? Because you, you perceive it in relation to another object or entity. And I was wondering, uh, like just a general science question, in a universe in which there is no relativity, because there's no multiplicity, like a universe of perfect oneness. And I'm thinking back to the state before the Big Bang, perhaps, just hypothetically. In a universe of oneness in, in which there is no relation between two objects, would time simply not exist? <laughs> I can't answer that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like my, my niece who would often ask me, what was there before the Big Bang? And time, <laughs> time is part of this universe, of course. Right. In the same sense that, you know, the three common dimensions are the ones we deal with all the time. Uh, those are just properties of the universe. There's no reason it had to be three dimensional. I'm leaving aside string theory here, but, uh, it, it, you know, it could have been four dimensional or two dimensional or something else. And, and maybe if it were two dimensional, you wouldn't have any life and whatever. If it were four dimensional, I don't know what you'd have, but, you know, you could have had that. So time is just a property of this universe. It's just a characteristic, I should say, of our universe. And so when you say, well, what happened before the Big Bang? The use of the words for, you know, before that word, before may not make any sense. Right. There's no time. What does it mean to say before? Mm -hmm. So yeah. th this gets immediately very philosophical. And mm -hmm. uh, that's great, but it is philosophical. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I guess g getting back to more um, solid ground territory, once we do accomplish the goal of uh, reaching an extraterrestrial civilization, how then do you think we would communicate with them? Would it be worth trying, um, considering how long it would take for our message to reach them and for the reply to reach us? Yeah, I think people will try no matter what. I mean, there's some people, if they have a backyard satellite dish and the ability to construct a transmitter, uh, they'll do it. 
they'll do it. Now, you point out if the aliens are a thousand light years away, for example, I mean, you know, there's no hurry to grab the microphone and start talking because it's going to take a long time for that signal to get there. And it'll be so weak by the time it gets there, maybe they won't be able to pick it up anyhow. But somebody's going to want to talk back. And, you know, there are a lot of people who think, oh, that's dangerous. We shouldn't broadcast anything to the aliens because you don't know what they're like. Well, yeah, we don't know what they're like. Uh, I don't know whether it's dangerous or not, but we're broadcasting to the aliens anyhow with our uh, television and our radar and, you know, our FM radio, all that's going out into space. So it's really kind of silly to worry about deliberate transmissions because, you know, that stuff is on 24-7. So uh, if anything's going to reach the aliens, I think it would probably be that. But I, I also don't worry about the content of anything that we send to the aliens. I don't think it matters. I mean, if if somebody had a project in 1491, you know, there could be other continents out there. Bob, let's 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 try and contact them. All right. Well, we'll just put this message in this bottle here and we'll write it in good Spanish, cork up the bottle and throw it into the ocean. <laughs> if you do that with enough bottles, some of them, you know, may get picked up on the shores of the Americas. And, uh, you know, they, they, they look at these things and, you know, they're thinking, well, what, what, what should we say to these guys? I mean, we better have some conferences about that, see if we can get a government grant to, to study this question before we, you know, willy-nilly throw some answer into the bottle or into the ocean with a, with a new bottle. But they're not going to do that. And it wouldn't really matter if they did do that. I, I don't worry too much about what we say to the aliens. It's the matter. It's the fact of contact more than anything else, I think, that matters. Mm-hmm. Whoever the Beatles are of 1491, they can send their lyrics across the ocean. Yes, sounds familiar somehow, but yes. In Confessions of an Alien Hunter, you uh, state that biological intelligence is probably a precursor to machine beings, and if aliens exist and contact us, they probably won't be humanoids. We talked about this a little bit earlier. I was wondering, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, just that's just an extrapolation from what we're doing. Much of what's said about aliens is just an extrapolation of what, you know, we ourselves are doing. If you look at any of the aliens in the movies, they look just like humans with less hair. But, uh, you know, but that's an extrapolation. And if you'd ask the dinosaurs, what do you think the aliens would look like? They'd say, well, you know, they're on four legs and they have, you know, big heads and small tails. and whatever. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, but looking at what we're doing in this century in particular, the expectation of the people I've spoken to here in this Silicon Valley about uh, generalized artificial intelligence, if you ask them, you know, well, will we have a machine that can not just play chess or poker or something like that, but that can actually teach a college course in literature or something like that? Will we have that kind of a machine by the middle of this century? And I've never heard anybody who said no. They all say yes. Now, maybe they're wrong and maybe it's going to take an extra hundred years, but that doesn't really matter terribly much because it's all really the same time scale. In other words, once you get to the point where you can build radio sets and stuff like that, you also get to the point where you can build synthetic intelligence. And once you have a thinking machine, of course, the big advantage is not that you can, you know, nap all day. The big advantage is that you can ask that machine to design a better machine than itself. Right. And then you build that and then you ask that machine the same question. So very quickly, you these machines evolve into even greater intelligence. That's something that doesn't happen with humans. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the way I see it. And that's why I think that the majority of the intelligence in the cosmos is not 
biological. Biology is great, but you know, it could be a very sort of fleeting thing when it comes to intelligence. Yeah, and that does go back to a whole slew of Isaac Asimov stories, the idea of a, like a computer achieving consciousness, which is something that I'm, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, so I won't say it with any kind of absolute, uh, period at the end of it, but I don't think we really do understand what consciousness really is. Yeah. Well, that's true. Uh, it's also not, I mean, it, it could be that it is just an emergent property that if you have enough, you know, neurons connected to one another, you, you know, you produce consciousness because it has a certain amount of survival value. If you're conscious, you know, you can take steps to avoid getting eaten or whatever. And so maybe that, you know, just build a complex enough machine and it's self-aware. That's, that's not dead obvious that that will happen. But uh, I asked a evolutionary biologist about this once. I said, well, do you think we could have a machine that's, you know, 10 times smarter than any human, you know, but that's not aware of its own existence? And her response to me was, never happen. That's what she said. She was from New York. So there you go. Impeccable New York accent. Well, hers was better than my invitation of it. Yes. <laughs> okay. So just for the last few questions, Oumuamua, which was the first interstellar kind of visitor, I guess. So it's been a source of fascination ever since it was discovered in 2017. So first of all, uh, is it a comet or an asteroid? And do you think that the alien object hypothesis carries any weight? And what do you make of it? Yeah, well, okay, there are a whole bunch of questions there. It, yeah. it was discovered by the Pan-STARRS camera on uh, Haleakala, I believe it is, in Hawaii, in any case. And all you see is a single pixel. It's just a dot on the pictures, right? But it's a dot that's moving relative to the star. So, you know, it's an object. And on the basis of its orbit, you could quickly determine that it's not from this solar system. It's from somebody else's solar system. And uh, the fact that it seemed to have strange motion after it rounded the sun, it seemed to be slightly accelerating relative to what was expected just from Newtonian physics. And uh, Avi Loeb, who's a, an astronomer from Harvard, in fact, he was the chair of the astronomy department there for many years. He and some of his colleagues wrote papers in which they said, you know, this might not just be an asteroid or a comet. I mean, what are the chances that a random asteroid or comet kicked out of somebody else's solar system is going to target our solar system? I mean, that's we're a very tiny, tiny patch of sky from their point of view, uh, which is a legitimate argument. And they also pointed out other things that they thought pointed that indicated that it was indeed a deliberately launched piece of hardware. And uh, I think uh, Dr. Loeb still maintains that to be the case. Astronomers that I know who study asteroids and comets don't agree. They say, look, the colors of this thing, I mean, and that's one of the few things we know about Umuama. Uh, is its color are you know consistent with it being an asteroid or whatever? So I, I think the chances of that it's actually artificial, some piece of hardware from somebody else's solar solar system are not great. But I also think that it's actually admirable that Avi Loeb has taken on this somewhat uh, I don't know it's it's a daring position that it could be artificial because you know sooner or later it's possible that we will find something that really is artificial and it may not be a muamua but on the other hand if you don't at least consider that possibility you might not find it when it actually happens 
Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a beauty of just even as a non-scientist myself living with that scientist scientist's philosophy which is to always be open to the possibilities and not to concretize any assumptions or beliefs too much. I think that's the fluidity of a scientist's understanding, constantly evolving, constantly open to, you know, discarding what no longer works and adopting what does work i think that's really cool so for the final question if you could just kind of tell us why do you think we we are so fascinated about extraterrestrial life in your view well i think you know it's, it's certainly interesting and a lot of it has to do with uh movies and television shows but on the other hand maybe that's you know interchanging the cart and the horse i think that it probably is. I think we're interested in other beings that might be our intellectual equals or perhaps superiors. And we're interested in that for very solid evolutionary reasons. If you don't pay attention to, uh, you know, other other critters that are as clever as you are, you might just not come out too well in the end. They, they might just take your, take your land and, you know, you starve to death or they take the women, and, you know, you're out of the gene pool or whatever. Uh, so it's always been in our interest to pay attention to competitors, our potential competitors, in the same way as, as it's always been our, in our interest to pay attention to anything with big teeth. That's why kids like dinosaurs, I think. Um, so I, I think it's just a, a natural evolutionary interest, just like, you know, feeling that your stomach drop when you think you're about to fall. That's just something evolution has programmed into you because it has survival value. I think that's why we're interested in aliens. And uh, after all, you know, maybe this generation will actually find some real ones. Uh, I hope so. Uh, it's, it's nice to hear that we come biologically equipped with fascination. Thank you so much for spending time with me and with our listeners today and for educating and enlightening us. It's been such a pleasure and an honor. Uh, how how can people get in contact with you? Where can people find you online? Perhaps if they have more UFO letters to send you? Yeah, well, I'm easy to find. I'm just Seth at Sethi.org. But nobody's going to remember that if you can remember my name or at least the first name and uh, you know follow it with Seti, S-E-T-I, instead of S-E-T-H, then uh, you'll find me very quickly. Awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That brings us to the end. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, researched, produced, and edited by Matthew at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on the Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. 
The Nevers, and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders.